Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to episode seven. If you had been listening for a while and you looked back at our playlist, you might have noticed that we had a Prohibition Part 1. And how weird. Where's Prohibition Part 2? Here we are. And today we're going to talk about a specific aspect of that. We're going to talk about Al Capone. Because everybody's heard of Al Capone. Everybody kind of associates him with Prohibition and gangsters of the 1920s. And there's kind of a a myth, legend behind this guy. And I want to peel that back and just kind of reveal to you really what this guy was and what he actually did. So he didn't start out as a a giant crime boss. He started out at the absolute ground level. And of course, Alphonse Capone was Italian. And the Italian mafia was really getting organized at this time. They arrived back in the 1880s with a lot of other immigrants at that time, but, uh, but they mainly did petty crimes and little racketeering here and there. They really didn't have a lot of power until Prohibition came along because Prohibition funneled a lot of money into their hands all at once. And so their power increased exponentially during this time, and that was one of the drawbacks to Prohibition. So Al Capone actually started in an organization in Chicago on the South Side, um, working for a boss known as Johnny Torrio. And uh, he actually was a bouncer. Uh, They had all sorts of illegal speakeasies and brothels and other stuff. And Al Capone would be the guy who threw you out if you broke the rules. And you didn't want to be thrown out by Al Capone because I want to tear this facade away from him right off the start. Understand that Al Capone was a sociopath psychopath. He was violent. He had an instantaneous, really horrible temper. And he tended to act violently first and then think about what he had done. So he didn't want to be on his bad side, even when he was just young. That's where he got one of his nicknames, um, Scarface, in that during one of these uh, um, altercations he had when he was a bouncer, uh, he got a jagged scar down one, one cheek. And carry that with him for the rest of his life. It also just kind of added to how intimidating this guy looks. Well, there were constant turf wars in Chicago over the speakeasy business, over this illegal alcohol business. And one of the main rivals to Johnny Torrio's gang was Bugs Moran's gang. And they ran the north side. Johnny Torrio ran the south side. And so when we get to 1929, on Valentine's Day, this is almost to the day, right? Um... There was something known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And that's where uh, seven members of Bugs Moran's gang, including his second in command, uh, got, quote, arrested by fake police and sort of ushered into a gas station garage where these fake police then produced Thompson submachine guns and executed them all in broad daylight. Now, there was violence already in the streets of Chicago at that time, but a submachine gun massacre of seven people during the daytime? That shocked almost everybody and kind of tore the veneer off of what was happening at the time. Johnny Torrio had given uh, uh, control of the gang over to Al Capone after an attempt on Johnny Torrio's life where he just decided he wanted out. And it was Al Capone who orchestrated the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, although the link historically has never been conclusively proven. After that, he became sort of public enemy number one. But in Chicago, he owned the mayor. He owned most of the police department. And there were a lot of powerful people in the city that made a lot of money off of Al Capone continuing to deal illegal alcohol. 
So in one particular year alone, Al Capone cleared $30 million, just himself. That was just in 1928. So $30 million coming to him. And this river of cash, that's a lot of money back in those days. That'd be, that'd be the equivalent to pretty close to about $300 million today. And so with that money, he could do a lot of stuff, in Chicago especially. Every once in a while when it looked like the heat was getting on uh, and, and uh, people were closing in or the FBI was starting to investigate or he had just committed some major crime, he would pick up his guys and they would just take off for a while. He would take his, pick his gang up and they would get in cars and they'd drive down the highway and leave the state. And believe it or not, one of the places they would flee is down to New Mexico. Way out of the way. Who would look for me here, right? Way out in the middle of nowhere. And it just so happens that one of the places Al Capone and his gang used to hang out was in north central New Mexico, right near where my family has a cabin. There are all sorts of geothermal hot springs down there because it's part of the Valle Grande Caldera. And so he would come to these hot springs and he would soak and he would kick back and he would tell stories and there wasn't any of the pressures of the business. There wasn't any G-men, FBI guys chasing after him. And they would just hide until things faded a little bit. There was a ranch house just north of my cabin about five miles that they used to stay at. It was way out of the way and just really pretty in the trees. And then he would go back and pick up his business where he left off. Now, Al Capone, he was a smart businessman for sure, for someone that didn't have a lot of education, that basically just used his violent temper to rise to the top of the gang syndicate. Um, but he had a lot of accountants and smart people working for him, laundering his money, making sure that, that cash payments got made to him that people couldn't easily trace. And that's all going to end in 1931. Now, the Treasury Department, the Prohees, the federal government, they all wanted Al Capone taken down because this guy's dangerous, but also because he controls so much of the politics in Chicago. And so they wanted him done. They wanted him out of the way. And they wanted a victory in Prohibition. And so they negotiated with him to say, you know, we know that you have made a lot of money and that none of that money got claimed for income taxes. And so they got him to admit, actually, that he hadn't paid taxes on some income. And then later, after negotiations broke down, they used that admission against him in court. Now, he had killed who knows how many people during his time on top of Chicago's crime syndicate. But he never got charged with murder because none of those could be proved. None of those could be actually tied to him. So when he went to trial, he's actually going to go to trial for income tax evasion. Right? <laughs> it's like charging someone at the Indy 500 with speeding. So anyway, he goes on trial, and he's already admitted that he's gotten this money, so it's pretty hard for him to deny it. He does uh, try a little bit of jury tampering that doesn't work out for him and ends up getting convicted. And then because of the income tax evasion, they charge him, I think it was about a quarter million dollars with interest and penalties, but sentenced him to 11 years. And because he's Al Capone, they're going to send him to Alcatraz, that famous federal prison that's in uh, Golden Gate Park area that's in the Bay in San Francisco. And in that prison, he was going to rot. Now, 11 years isn't a very long sentence. And he was only 33 when he got sentenced. But uh, very early on in his sentence, he starts exhibiting symptoms of syphilis. And syphilis untreated back in those days, that's, that's gonna, that can kill you. And it also does a number on your brain and your sanity. And so he just deteriorates in prison. 
Now, most people think he died in Alcatraz from syphilis, but actually Al Capone got released because of his health after only eight years of his sentence. So he was sentenced to 33. They released him at age 41, but he's in bad shape. And only three years later, he's going to die at the age of 44. Now, during this time, there were other people that were going to step into the gap. Taking down one kingpin wasn't going to solve Prohibition's problems. And just like the drug wars that we have today, you can take out an El Chapo, but someone is always there to take their place when there's this much money at stake. And actually, there are a lot of parallels between our efforts to control alcohol during Prohibition and our efforts to control prohibited drugs during the modern era. You can look at a lot of similarities between both what we've tried and what has and hasn't worked. Well, in 1934, the government's going to make sort of a rapid shift, and it's going to do so with the blessing of prohibitionists. The former people that had supported the 18th Amendment agreed that it just had not worked, and uh, that things were actually worse with the violence than they were back when it was just regulated alcohol. Uh, The government also at this point was in the middle of the Great Depression and badly in need of revenue. And so they agreed to pass the 21st Amendment. And the 21st Amendment, it's like just erased the 18th pretty much. Just said that from now on, alcohol is now legal to sell under state and federal regulation, yada, 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 here you go. And so this, this experiment that we had lasted just about 14, 15 years and failed miserably. And then we moved on. Now, what I tell all of my students is that there's an easy way to remember the 18th and the 21st Amendment. The 18th prohibited alcohol, the 21st Amendment made it legal again. And that's the following sentence. When you're 18, you can't drink. When you're 21, you can. Simple as that. When you're 18, you can't drink. When you're 21, you can. The 18th Amendment and the 21st Amendment. All right, we've got the Great Depression coming up. We've got the New Deal. We've got a bunch of stuff happening soon. I'll see you in the next podcast.